All right, well, let's pray, guys. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for this day. Lord, as we take some time to just uh, let the cares of this world just roll off and focus on the work and the person of your son, as we consider Palm Sunday, as we consider the triumphal entry, as we consider what your word has to communicate to us, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we'd be doers. We commit this time to you, Lord. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that truly want to understand what you have for each of us individually this morning as we apply your word to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as I mentioned, it's Palm Sunday. Uh, in the Christian calendar, we commemorate this as the beginning of Passion Week. Uh, you know, we put titles on everything. And, you know, it's essentially, this is the most intense week, was the most intense week in the Lord Jesus' earthly life. This is the beginning of the beginning. Not the beginning of the end, but the beginning of the beginning uh, as it is because we know that when we come together next Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. A lot goes on between this day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem fulfilling the prophecies in Zechariah and a number of other prophecies as well when he rides into Jerusalem on that donkey. And he begins then to teach the people he, and, and the pressure mounts with the religious leaders. I mean, squaring off with them daily in the courts of the temple and up on the Mount of Olives is the Olivet Discourse. I mean, there's a great deal of the scripture in the Gospels is communicated to us through the events of this last week. It is packed. We can only hope to just kind of shadow over some of the things here. I'm going to look at a couple of things this morning as we, as we go. I want to focus on the crowd. Actually, I want to say the crowds. We're going to look at one crowd because there was a giant crowd to receive Jesus into the city that day. And yet there were two crowds. And yet there were four crowds. And we're going to look at that. Okay, that got some of you turning your head sideways, so that's good. I wanted to. Uh, but the point is, this is a huge crowd. There's a lot of bustle in the city of Jerusalem as Jesus rides in. Uh, they had their ideas of what was going on and what was about to take place, but God had his own design, and we're going to look at that. So I'm going to start with, uh, I'll ask you guys to open to Exodus chapter 12, but we're going to look at Matthew 16:21. I, I want to start with that. Matthew 16:21 says this, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now this is in Matthew 16. If you remember, if you know the, your Bible, you see that that's where Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. It was a, a, a small settlement on the flanks, the lower flanks of, of, the, of Mount Hermon, big rocky face behind where Jesus was standing at the headwaters of the Jordan River, one of three headwaters. This is the main one at a place called Banyas. Uh, it had been called Panyas, but the Arabs couldn't say the P sound, so they renamed it Banyas because they could say that. So anyway, uh, but he's here at this, it was a, a center of pagan worship. And, and he asked his guys, well, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say uh, a prophet or Elijah or John the Baptist. And, and then he sharpens it up. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says those famous words, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. And on this rock, 
I'm going to build my church not on the rock of Mount Hermon or, or the rock of Peter. He says, your name's Littlestone, and I'm going to rename, or I'm naming you from Cephas to Peter, and that's Littlestone, but on this Petros, on this foundation, I'm going to build my church. And the foundation was the statement that he had made that Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus goes on at that point in Matthew 16, and he I'm just summarizing here because I want to move on. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And he goes on and he says, I'm giving to you guys the keys to the kingdom. And if you understand what happened in the first century, what he was doing was if a man was going to go on a journey, he would give his servants charge of his territory and of his property and of his home and all of his, uh, everything that he had. And he would give them the keys. They would be stewards in that sense of their master's stuff. Well, Jesus says, I'm giving you guys to the keys to the kingdom. I am calling you now. He's, he's beginning to elevate their call here in Matthew 16 to not simply be disciples, but I am giving you stewardship over the kingdom of God because in a little over a year from that point, he would be going to the cross. It says there then, it says from that time in verse 21, as I just read, that's, there was a shift in Jesus' ministry at that time. That last year plus was going to be really intense and it was going to, he would sharpen the focus again on equipping these guys to carry the gospel forward when he was gone, when he had risen from the dead and had ascended to, into heaven. So this is a very important, it's a pivotal point in the, the life and ministry of Jesus and also the life and ministry of his men. So with that, I want to go and I want to shift the focus uh, to Exodus chapter 12 and we're going to just read a few verses, three through six here. Verse three, uh, God saying to Moses, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take him for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for every household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall take, make your count for the lamb. So he's basically saying, if you can't afford it, if you're too, your house is too small and it's a burden, then you can share with your neighbor. The, God is inst instituting, it's, this is the 10th plague on Egypt, and it's the plague of death, and he's instituting the very first Passover where these guys would take this lamb and they would sacrifice it and put the blood on, on the lintels and the doorposts of their homes, and the angel of death would pass over them. So that's where we get the word or the term Passover. The Jews celebrated this as a memorial. They still do. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful if we had the time, we could look at all the linkage from that to Christ and the fulfillments that there are. But I want to make some points here. So in verse 5, he says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. This day, uh, the Assyrians, in the Hebrew, it was called Abib, the month of Abib. It was the first month of their calendar. And then after their captivity, it got renamed Nisan, uh, which was, it's an Assyrian term. It was, uh, it was changed. But it was Nisan 10 on the Hebrew calendar. And on this day, the very same day would be the day that Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem. He is the fulfillment. This is called the day of selection. It's when Israel would find a lamb. The Israelites, they would go and they would go to the temple and they would buy a lamb or they would bring a lamb with them. We talked before about Annas' Bazaar and Caiaphas and the creepy high priests that were in place at that time and the hucksterism that went on. 
And they, they had turned it into, a, just a, as Jesus said, a house of merchandise. Uh, and not going to belabor that again, but the scene here is that this is a, a really busy day in Jerusalem. Uh, it's the day of selection where they select the lamb, and God's instruction was take it on the 10th, keep it under observation until the 14th, and then sacrifice it for Passover at twilight, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So they had to be without spot or blemish, uh, and then that, again, is when Jesus chose to ride this donkey into Jerusalem. The people were there. They were waving palm fronds, uh, uh, screaming Hosanna, which means save now. Uh, and he comes as the selected lamb of God. This is God's selection. Hundreds and hundreds of years after Moses put these things forth, here we see Jesus fulfilling perfectly the pattern that was set back there. Interesting, he would be on display for the next four days, Monday through Thursday. This is Sunday, when he, the first day of the week. Actually, the second day in that sense, but um, no, the first day. It's the Sunday that he's there. Monday through Thursday, he would be being inspected by the people, by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the same ones that Jesus talked about back in Matthew 16, where he said, I have to go to Jerusalem, and the priests, the elders, and the scribes are going to be examining me, there, and I have to go to the cross, and I will be crucified at that time. He told this guys plainly, long before it took place. So he's going to be there, and he'll be under inspection. And then it's interesting, at the end of his six mock trials, every one of them was illegal, and uh, we'll probably look at that a bit next week. Um, we see in John 19, verse 6, when Jesus is before Pilate, he says, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. He was declared spotless without blemish by Pilate himself. So again, these things meshing together, going all the way back in Israel's history when they were delivered from Egypt, going forward throughout their history, we see there are these impressions, these types, these shadows of Messiah all through the Old Testament. People say, well, I don't see God in the Old Testament or Jesus in the Old Testament. It's like, well, all you have to do is look because Jesus himself said in the, in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. Just look, open your eyes, open your spiritual eyes and you see him all over. When we see the apostle Paul, when he was commissioned to go and to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, he's going to city after city after city in the Roman Empire. The first thing he did when he showed up is he'd go to the synagogue and he'd begin to reason with the people from the scriptures. The New Testament was still being formed at that time. He was reasoning with people about Jesus from the Old Testament with passages probably like this. There are scores of passages that refer to him, and that messianic prophetic passages that he fulfilled. So with that, let's go to John chapter 12 and we'll take a look at Jesus at Bethany. Now to kind of set up the background here, in John chapter 11, Jesus was up in the Galilee region, in the northern part of the country, uh, there ministering with his guys, and uh, word came to him that his friend Lazarus was sick. And it says that Jesus didn't go, he instead stayed four days longer. By that time, Lazarus had died, and then he chose to go, that the works of God could be manifest. That's what it says in John chapter 11. So he goes down, he finds this whole scene, people wailing and lamenting and mourning because Lazarus is dead. He'd been in the tomb. He was, they said he stunk. <laughs> I mean, he was very dead. And Jesus goes and he consoles Martha and Mary, his two sisters in Bethany, which is, if you look at the Temple Mount here in, in Jerusalem, 
the Mount of Olives goes up, and then up over the top of the Mount of Olives is a town on the backside called Bethany. And that's where they lived. That's where that took place. Well, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The people are absolutely blown away by it. And many people choose to follow him as a result. Uh, it says, though, that the Jews really heated up. They wanted to hatch a plan to murder Lazarus and Jesus. And so Jesus departed from there to another city far away so that he could stay away from, stay out of the fray because his hour had not yet come. You remember, you're reading the Gospels over and over again. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He is stating he knows the day that he's going to do this. He knows the calendar in his own mind. And he knew that it wasn't time for him to come into the city until this day. That it's time now for him to come and for things to get rolling along in, in high gear because it's going to be an intense, intense week. So that's the background here. Jesus is now coming out of hiding in that sense and coming up to the Passover. Verse 1 of John chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served... But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. I just have to stop there. I, I picture this scene, and, and I mean, here's Lazarus, maybe, you know, thumbing his fingers on the table. And people, I mean, they had just seen him, like, <laughs> lifeless. And <laughs> you want to talk about a changed life? This guy didn't have to open his mouth. I mean, just sitting there at the table with Jesus was a, a, just a silent testament to the greatness of this man, this, this Jesus guy that has been now healing people for years, a couple, three years, and he's now raised this guy from the dead. He's risen some others from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the whole deal. I mean, they're seeing the culmination of this, and there are huge crowds gathering outside because they're following him along. It says in verse 3 that, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. What a beautiful act of worship. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why has this fragrant oil why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but that he, because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. I think it's interesting. This is the first recorded words of Judas. And the first thing out of his mouth is why. Now, there have been times in my life where I have said, Lord, why? But never, Lord, why? Uh, there's a difference. It's an attitude of the heart. When I talk to people, I, and I, I remember, uh, I may have shared with you guys, uh, sharing with a gentleman one day, uh, uh, sharing Christ with him, and he's, he got real up in my face. He's, what about all those people in Africa that are starving? What about, you know, all the injustice? What about all the murderers and all the stuff that's going on? And, and you know, and, and I was just like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, why would God do that? And he was, he was really upset about it, and yet what I perceived in my spirit was that these things really didn't matter to him that much. They may have, I don't know the heart, but what mattered to him was coming up with reasons why not to believe. 
And when he got to the part about talking about people in Africa, I just said, you want to go? That's kind of bold. <laughs> but I said, so, all right, you're upset about that. Do you want to go? Well, uh, 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 no, I can't. I've got to, yeah. And it was like, listen, ours is not to ask God why. We live on a fallen planet. We live on a planet that, yes, when Jesus went to the cross, he purchased the right to the title deed to this earth. But we're told in Romans that the earth is still subjected to futility. We live on a fallen world. We are redeemed people living in a fallen world. Therefore, when Jesus says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, he's talking about the darkness that's around us. You let that light shine. And so when Jesus says why, or Judas says why here, it's just a, a, a very slight indicator, but it's a true indicator of his heart. And John is sure to name that, you know, he was stealing the, the money. He was taking the stuff. Uh, interesting, I look at Mary in this scene, and I did a little bit of quick math. I figured out, and a denarius is a day's wage, okay? Uh, and he says, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarius? Well, I figured if at uh, modest 12 bucks an hour, somebody working eight hours a day, this bottle of perfume would be worth just short of $30,000. That's a lot of money. What she was giving Jesus in this, I mean, think about it. She was giving Jesus everything. She was essentially giving him her dowry. This is very expensive perfume, probably imported from India. Uh, oil of spikenard, it came from uh, that part of the world. And when she is worshiping him in that way, uh, Jesus says in verse 7, he says, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but me you do not always have. There's a place where God calls upon each of us to sacrifice. And, and, I, and I, I don't want to call you out in a weird way, but I think about Charles and Joanne. They're sacrificing. God's put it on their hearts to go to Kenya this summer. And, and you guys, I just ask you to pray for them. The, the battle has been intense already. And I, I praise God that he's doing that work, that they're able to join that work that we're a part of. And it's a sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice of time. Uh, it's a sacrifice of, of the expense. The church is not sending them. They're raising their support. Again, should the Lord put that on your heart to help them with that? Praise God. I know that they could use it. But my point is, he calls upon us to sacrifice. Yeah, they're sacrificing and going there. Often he calls upon us to sacrifice staying here. He calls upon us and he taps us into, and that sacrifice should always be looked at as an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Why do I sacrifice? Because I ascribe worth to him. Because he is the one in my life that I sacrifice for. And I'm not going to walk around shouting from the rooftops, oh, look at me, how sacrificial I am. No, it's just the quiet things that we do and the things I, I get so blessed, you guys, I mean, as a pastor, I become aware of things that are going on behind the scenes sometimes, and it just blesses my heart to see the sacrifice that people make uh, in order to further the work of the gospel, to further the work of the kingdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and it's a beautiful way to worship the Lord. Yeah, we worship him in song, but do we worship him with our lives? That's the point. That's what Mary's doing. 
interesting, Mary and Martha were getting it. And going back to chapter 11, when, where Lazarus was raised, um, in, in verses 25 through 27, Jesus is speaking with Martha here. He's just coming up the road uh, from Galilee. He hasn't gotten into Bethany yet to go and He hasn't raised Lazarus from the dead yet. And, uh, and both Martha and Mary said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died because they knew his ability to perform miracles. We've been talking about that on Sunday mornings here in the Gospel of John about how the people could have a lower view. And I believe that God was, Jesus was opening their understanding to have a higher view of him through this particular miracle. Because, uh, well, Martha has some interesting dialogue with him. In verse 25, he, he tells uh, Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then I picture his eyes just piercing into Martha as he says, do you believe this, Martha? Dear friend, because she and Mary and Lazarus were dear friends of Jesus. They were part of his inner circle. And Martha says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She still had a ways to go and it very soon after this conversation, her, her sister would come running up and then Jesus would have some interaction with Mary as well. Uh, but they were getting it. The lights were coming on. Their view of Jesus was elevating from that of just simply being a miracle worker. And again, we've, we've talked about that at length. We'll talk about it a little bit this morning to seeing that he has the ability, he has the power over life itself. I mean, he has the authority to forgive sin. The authority, and it's not just to forgive sin because that's a churchy thing to do. It's to forgive sin, to reunite man with God in communion, in fellowship with God himself. That thing that was broken in the garden thousands of years before was now being made right. And within just a very few days of these events that we're looking at this morning, the work of redemption would be accomplished and it would be complete once for all. They wouldn't have to go and make these animal sacrifices year after year and going to the temple because the temple now would be the people of God because the sacrifice has been made and accepted by the Father. What an awesome, awesome thing that is. Back to uh, John 12 and verse 9 now. Great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests, plotted to kill Lazarus, to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Again, uh, I love what Chuck Smith used to say, a changed life changes a life. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. Here's a guy that just by sitting at the table with Jesus is broadcasting the power that this guy has. Far more than to raise him from the dead because Lazarus lived to die again. But Lazarus rose again as well. He is part of the resurrection as you and I are if we have indeed released our lives to Christ. If that deal is done, if we have repented of our sin, if we have asked him to come into our lives and to be Lord of our lives, embrace a relationship with him, not just a magic formula, that doesn't get it then he is the one who will resurrect you, resurrect me. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. Uh, stop now or I'll get into next week's message. <laughs> so 
says, the chief priest in verse 10 plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now, we've talked about up until now, this is one exception here in the Gospel of John in this passage, when you see the word Jews, that it means the religious leaders, the, the creepy guys, okay? Yeah, the, the guys that probably had thin black mustache. No, they didn't. But the, it, it means the enemies of Christ. When he's talking about the Jews here, he's talking about the people just coming out of the city because it's Passover. There are crowds everywhere, and there's a gathering crowd at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house in Bethany. Uh, we've seen it. it says that the people that were there were coming along, and the, the crowd was building. Verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So here we see, all right, catch the scene, guys. As I mentioned, Passover, one and a half million people, roughly, in the city coming into the city. This is the week before, so people are still arriving. But there is a huge crowd in the city that hears that Jesus is coming. They come out of the city to meet him. Remember I said one crowd, but two crowds, but four crowds. So there's one crowd that's coming out of the city to meet him, but there's also a crowd coming with him as he comes down the Mount of Olives. And he comes and he, he stops and he weeps over the city. There's a huge crowd there that when he gets together, when he gets down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley and starts coming over into the temple area, these crowds mesh and there would be this throng of people that would just be shouting and screaming and carrying, I mean, to the point where the religious leader is saying, hey, tell them to shut up. And he's saying, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. You can't stop this scene. You can't stop this from unfolding. I mean, this is a very, just it's an incredible scene. These crowds coming together and, and coming together because they see and they recognize Jesus as Messiah. But we'll see as we go, it wasn't really a full-blown idea of what he was there for. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as, is as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a quote from the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Back in Zechariah, I mean, this is hundreds of years again, hundreds of years before that Zechariah prophesied this. And here Jesus comes and he's fulfilling a, a number of prophecies as he comes. Verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they'd heard that he had done this sign. Now, this is the crowd that's gathering and coming from Bethany with him. So catch the scene. They're coming over the crest of the Mount of Olives because, uh, and I'll tell you, one of the most stunning sights I ever had. Have you ever like been driving along, you go around a, a corner, and there's like this beautiful majestic lake or sunset or whatever. I mean, it's like right there in front of you. And it, it's, it's kind of shocking, but in a beautiful way. I, I, I will never forget the first time I came over the top of the Mount of Olives and 
crested the mountain. We parked on the backside and we were walking on foot. We walked all the way down, all the way down to the valley, uh, the Kidron Valley, but right all the way down to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just off the valley floor, and then walked around down there. And I mean, it was an absolute stunning sight to come over the top and to look down the Temple Mount spread out right in front of us, this huge, and it's got the Dome of the Rock and all that crazy stuff on it, but I mean, just looking at the Temple Mount and, and just and realizing, man, this is where it all happened. This is what Jesus saw when he came over that hill every time he came into town. And on this day, he came over the hill and it was significant for him. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing no nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're seeing these two crowds coming together now. In Luke chapter 19, we're going to switch to that narrative. We'll come back to, to looking at John in a few. But in Luke chapter 19, uh, it, it would be remiss if we didn't look at this particular scene that Luke outlines. John's narrative stops there with the triumphal entry. And Luke picks it up here, uh, and in verse 41 of, of the Gospel of Luke, we read, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Sobering. Jesus crests the hill, sees the temple mount, begins to cry and prophesizes destruction. Why? It was clearly seen if they'd have been students of the scripture as they claimed to be, rather than straining, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, as he says in the Gospel of Matthew when he's pronouncing seven woes during this week on the city. They missed it. They were rejecting Messiah. He knew that that rejection was coming, even though there was all this hoopla coming down into the city. And we'll look at, we'll take the crowds apart here in a bit. But coming down, prophesying against the city, and in 70 AD, less than 40 years from the time Jesus uttered these things, the Roman legions under Cyrus would level the city. They obliterated Jerusalem. And they left not one stone upon another. Uh, we've walked along the, the, the walls of the Temple Mount where these huge stones were pushed off by the Romans when they cleared the top of the Temple Mount. They cleared it. And, and these stones were so heavy that, and the roads are still, it's like the road goes along like that and then there's this rock and the road has this like six foot deep dent in it with this rock when it fell off the Temple Mount and onto the Roman roads there uh, just outside the Temple Mount. And it's still there today. I mean, they fulfilled what Jesus prophesies here to the letter because those people missed the day of their visitation. If you have uh, the thing I had in the bulletin, we're going to talk about this, um, the 70 weeks of Daniel. I'm just going to take a few minutes. Again, the prophetic word is just, it's amazing. And God has left the prophetic word intact for us because 
it builds our faith. When we see that there are things that are laid out in God's word and we see the completion of those things, it really builds our faith. And we see that we stand in the midst of the prophetic calendar as it is because there are things that have been prophesied that have not yet come about. So we're going to look at part of the 70 weeks of Daniel. 69 of those weeks have taken place. The 70th week, praise God, I don't believe we'll be here because after the church is raptured, taken out, that 70th week, that last seven years of Earth's history is going to be virtually hell on earth. The prophesied Lamb of God came into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan. The very day predicted nearly 500 years before. In Daniel chapter 9, we're told, No one understand this, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or heptads. The Hebrew word for weeks there is heptad. Um, what it means is a unit of seven. It doesn't mean necessarily seven-day weeks. It can mean that, but it doesn't mean that. It's dictated by the context here. What he's saying is seven seven-year periods and 60, um, yeah, 62 seven-year periods, or a total of 69 seven-year units. That's 483 years. The calendar in those days was a 360-day calendar. And just bear with me. I, this gets a little technical, but it's to make a point. Uh, I was looking at calendars as I was preparing for this morning. It, it was, I found it fascinating. It was like, okay, Lord, why did they use a 360-day calendar? Did you know that every financial institution, including the stock markets, use a 360-day calendar? I'd been told this by uh, one of the people that I know in business that's a, a real estate developer. And he said, yeah, the banks always do 360-day deal. They, they chip us out of five days and all this stuff. And he was kind of grizzling about it. And that was when I first learned about it. But then I started looking at uh, the, the lunar calendar is 354 days. The solar calendar is 365 days. Halfway between the two of those is guess what? 360 days. And I don't know if those people had that figured out back then, but I do know that the ancient world used a 360-day calendar. And if you use that calendar and you multiply that out by these heptads, by these units of seven years, 483 years, you come up with 173,880 days. From March 14th, 445 B.C., that was the day that Artaxerxes, and some people argue and say it was Darius or Cyrus. I think the preponderance of the evidence points to Artaxerxes, um, king of Persia, that he gave the Jews charge to rebuild Jerusalem. That exact amount of days from Daniel's prophecy of when that charge was given to go back and to restore the city brought us to April 6th, AD 32, this day. It's the day that Jesus rode that donkey into the city. It, it was given. It was clear. I mean, all they had to do was do the math. I'm not great at that, but I sat down with a calculator. Yeah, I had, they didn't have calculators, but I did. And I started trying to kind of figure it out myself. And there are different, there's, there's some, I'll tell you what, there's some controversy about these things. And I don't rely on formulas a lot, but it's very interesting that 
Daniel did prophesy when Messiah the Prince would come. And that fits, this model fits those dates. So if you look here, you see on this chart that I passed out, there are 69 periods of seven years. The, the blacked out part is where we're at when we look at today, when we look at the week before up to the time when Jesus went to the cross. So that 69 periods of seven years, you could, uh, and again, it, it makes sense to me. It took him 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, I believe. And there are people that just lump both of those together and say 69 weeks, that's fine. Or you could say seven and then 69. Um, and then you see this 69 weeks here in Daniel until the Messiah, the Prince, comes. When Jesus, when Messiah presented himself to Israel as Messiah, that's what he's doing when he rides into town this day. He is presenting himself to Israel, knowing they're going to reject him. So it's just sort of a, a neat little chart with some information. I have the, the prophecy from Daniel on there. Welcome you to take it home, check it out, study it for yourself, put it in the trash, whatever you want to do. But I think it's fascinating because uh, these kind of, I mean, they just trip my trigger. I love looking at these kind of things because I like the technical stuff. That said, it's no wonder that Jesus wept over the city when he came over the hill. He, it says it in the gospel, the other gospels that and he, he said, you've killed the prophets that I've sent to you. And how I would long to have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And because of that, you've missed the day of your visitation. By the way, I believe that for each of us in our lives, there is a day of visitation. I clearly remember the day I got saved. I clearly remember the day that the, the Spirit of God touched my heart in such a deep way after years of religion that I had no choice but to respond. I tried not to. And yet, through a prophetic word he gave a pastor about me, it was absolutely undeniably clear that that was my day of visitation. It's important to realize there's still one more week, as I mentioned. It is the 70 weeks of Daniel, not the 69 weeks of Daniel. The 70th week is that last seven years of Earth's history uh, known as the, the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation period, the Great Tribulation. It's when there's so much going on on this earth, the Holy Spirit is pulled back. When the church is raptured out of here and, and, and we're caught up to meet with him in the air, I hope I'm part of that group but it says those who have died in Christ will rise first uh, and will be caught up to meet with him in the air. And the, from there we go right into his presence and we go right to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What an, a glorious time that will be when Jesus girds himself about and serves us on that day. The church is gone. That last seven years will be horrible. The Holy Spirit is a great restrainer, folks, and he is pulled back. When, when God pulls back the Spirit of God, when he pulls back the Spirit's presence, people can still get saved, but there's very high likelihood it will cost them their lives. And we see that happening over and over again. We, in the pictures that we see in the Bible, we see that when the wrath of God begins to be poured out, it is heavy. Back to John, I want to wrap up with taking a, just looking at uh, and break this down. We looked at one crowd, this huge crowd, there at Jerusalem when Jesus rides in. And we looked at the fact that it's two crowds because there was one that came out of the city to meet him and there was one that came down the hill with him. 
and they converged and this hoopla broke out. We see here four groups, four mindsets. The first I want to look at is the sensationally motivated man in verses 17 and 18 here in John 12. It says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. There were the sign seekers. They were the ones who were looking for signs and we've talked about it at length. Not going to belabor it, guys. Uh, in the Gospel of John, we see it real clearly that Jesus is always resisting the people who have this view of him that falls short because they see him as a miracle worker, but they're not seeing him as Messiah. They're not seeing him as a, the one who would save humanity from itself. Much higher view. So you have these people, they're coming along, they're part of the crowd, they're joining the crowd because they want to see him do his stuff. Show us some more. By the way, at the cross, this group shows up too. This is they were wagging his tongues as they walked past the cross saying, yeah, if you're the son of God, take yourself down from there. Come on, let's see another miracle, Jesus. The second, and you know, let me say this. I'm not picking on people that like seeing miracles. I like seeing miracles. I think it's great to see things that are beyond the natural, supernatural. You just, that's just not the diet that we live on. And there are people that, in, that endeavor to live on that kind of a diet, that kind of a spiritual diet. And it will leave you hungry. It will leave you wanting. So balance. The second group here is the politically or socially motivated ones. Verses 12 and 13 says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Sounds great, doesn't it? Hosanna means save now. They wanted Jesus to come in. We've been looking at it in the Gospel of John when he fed the 5,000 or 15,000, if you want to look at that. Uh, and they wanted to literally come and take him by force and take him off to Jerusalem and install him as king because he gave them bread. We talked about that. Do you want a bread God? Do you want a storm? You know, all that. These are the people here that they're saying, Hosanna, they're saying save now because they wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. They were looking at politics. They were looking at Jesus to be the solution to their political problems and their social injustices. I've gone to churches, folks, where I hear a social gospel, and it's not the gospel that the Bible presents. It's and I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying you, you call it for what it is. If you're hearing a social gospel, it's kind of like God's good and we're all good and he's good and we're going to pat me on the head when I get to heaven and all that. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. And, and one of the things I remember years ago, sitting in a Bible study, and this guy thundered from the pulpit. He goes, God is not a Republican. And I thought, what an odd thing to say. And then I thought about it and I went, wow, God's not a Republican. <laughs> and, and I just remember because he was talking about, you know, we, we tend to reduce God to our political ideologies. Yeah. 
And these people had it rough. Don't get me wrong. They had a really tough time in Israel in those days. They were oppressed. They were so heavily taxed that they couldn't get out from under it because the Romans were just collecting taxes they didn't have the money for. And then if there were problems, the Romans solved problems one way. They had these four foot long, you know, swords. And if there was an, uh, an uprising or if there was something going on, they took care of it. And they just came in and started swinging their swords. And so they were so afraid of the Romans and they had good reason to be wanting Jesus to be a social messiah for wanting him to be a political messiah, but he wasn't. And so we see in the crowd, these guys are throwing down the palm fronds and they're making all this hoopla and Jesus knows that their hearts, by the end of the week, they would be in the crowd that's saying, crucify, crucify. Matthew 27, it says, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? And they chose Barabbas. You remember what Barabbas was? He was a political insurrectionist. So again, going from here to when Jesus is about to be crucified, they vote for the guy to be released that represents political justice, social justice to them. Again, there's a balance when we see a social injustice, yeah, it, it's, it's fair game to call that out. It, it's not fair game. It's not glorifying God to live my life thinking that God needs to do my political bidding. I look in the New Testament at how many times politics are involved. Jesus says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. That's it. Paul says in Romans 13, he says, don't want to be afraid of the government? Obey the laws. Pretty simple. That's it. The rest of it is talking about the kingdom of God. The rest of it is talking about what it is to be a disciple of his. The rest of it is talking about communion with God and, and the fact that that way is opened by Jesus, the true Messiah that forgave my sins, that has guaranteed me eternity in his presence. How much bigger is that? Don't settle for a puny God. These people were. The third group we see here is the religiously motivated man and the Jews. They were worried about two things. First, their own power. In verse 19 of chapter 12, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They were losing their power base to this rabbi from Galilee. They were losing it. They were losing their grip. And, and in this week that would go after this, this next few days before they put him on the cross, it wouldn't go well for the religious leaders. Jesus would point out the, the total heresy of what they were doing. He would point out the fact that they were woefully inadequate to say that they represented God in any meaningful way at all. And they would heat up to the point of saying, we've got to get this guy, we've got to, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to get rid of him. He is a real threat to our power base. Second thing that the Jews were afraid of was the Romans. In chapter 11, uh, verses 47 and 48, it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? This is after Lazarus was raised from the dead. For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
So they were not worried about the things of God. They were religious guys. They didn't have a relationship with God. And it shows. What they were doing and what religion does, folks, is religion puts God in subjection to man. And God will not be in subjection to man. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he deserves that place in our hearts and our lives. The last group we see here, looking at these four groups that are in this whole crowd that converges on Jerusalem as Jesus rides in on that donkey, are true followers. There were true followers in the crowd. And many would come afterwards as well. Uh, only, what, seven weeks from, eight weeks from this time on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people are saved. Talk about that more next week. But here, in verses 2 and 3, and all, actually through the first nine verses of chapter 12, we see Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they had a relationship with Jesus. They weren't religious. They were relational. And out of that, we see uh, there's three things that are interesting about those couple of verses. We see Mary, a worshiper of Jesus. Martha, a servant to Jesus. And Lazarus, a witness for Jesus. Those are three components to a healthy relationship, a healthy walk with the Lord. We see worship, we see serving, and we see a witness, a life that's a witness. Lazarus didn't have to open his mouth, as I mentioned. He sat at the table, and people were probably still coming. Mary worshipped when she poured the oil on his feet and wiped it with her hair. What an intimate, beautiful exchange. And Martha served. She handled the, the logistics. She made the meal. I think it's a beautiful picture of what our lives look like as believers. Worship and fellowship with God. Serving God, which flows out of fellowship. The richness of our service only flows from the richness of our fellowship. To do it any other way is to simply go through the motions and get things done. It's doing the right things with the wrong heart. And then the witness of our lives simply being a changed life. Uh, who was it that said, I witness all the time and sometimes I use words? <laughs> I think that's a great saying. I don't remember, it was one of the guys back a couple hundred years ago. But it's true. Just our lives, letting our light so shine before men to glorify our Father who's in heaven. That's the goal. That's the goal of being in right relationship with him. <coughs> 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The word desires there is the word longings. The time will come where people will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll turn aside. They'll want a political Jesus. They'll want a social Jesus. They'll want a signs and wonders Jesus. 
oh, they'll want a religious Jesus where they might as well just put him on a flag and put him up on the podium instead of a living Lord that we personally are connected with and involved with and have fellowship with that seeks fellowship with us, that seeks communion with us, that seeks intimacy with us. That's the Jesus of the New Testament. That's the Jesus riding into town on that donkey. And they missed it. And people still do. Don't miss it. I want to take a minute. I wrote some things down here as we close this morning about the difference between religion and relationship. And uh, I'll just go through it. Religion says, obey and you'll be loved by God. Relationship says, obey because you are loved by God. Religion says, the point of Christianity is to be saved from hell. Fire insurance. Relationship says, the point of Christianity is to receive God's love through the work of Jesus on the cross. The relationship. Religion says Christianity is a set of abstract theological principles. Relationship says Christianity is the story of God's work throughout history to redeem a people. Religion says you're a servant, and this one you could interchange, but relationship says you're a son or a daughter. That's awesome. Religion says God is distant. Relationship says God is near. Religion makes rules to avoid sin. In relationship with him, we grow in wisdom and maturity. And as a byproduct, we sin less. Religions for Sundays. Relationships for every day. Religion says, I was created to serve God. I've asked that question before. I've shared it here. So what were we created for? And how often people have said, well, to serve God. Absolutely false. Relationship says, I was created for fellowship with God. That was restored by the power of the cross. Guaranteed by the resurrection. Religion says, I pray in order to get stuff from God. Relationship says, yeah, hey, you guys, I hear you laughing. <laughs> Relationship says, I pray in order to get time with God. What a beautiful difference. Religion, I give in order be, to be blessed by God. Relationship says, I give because I've been blessed by God in so many ways. Religion says, I read my Bible in order to know what to do. Relationship says, I read my Bible to know about the God whom I love. Religion, I worship because a powerful God demands it. Relationship says, I worship because I'm overcome with love for Jesus. Just a few things in closing, guys. As this week unfolds, uh, next week we're going to have another uh, a special, a special message uh, as far as the resurrection goes. Um, we're going to uh, call it Mercy Incarnate. Stay tuned. 
Uh, we're going to go back into the Old Testament. We're going to pull some things from way back. We're going to go to the tabernacle. We're going to go to the Ark of the Covenant. Then we're going to come forward to the cross. And then we're going to go to the tomb. And um, I'm excited because, again, it's plumbing the Old Testament, pulling these things forward and saying, how does this fit the person and the work of Jesus? And you don't have to force it to fit. It's not like a, a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you think you got the right part. You try to, it's like, Argh! No, it, the pieces fall together perfectly and beautifully. So um, just pray that uh, as we go forward as a church that we're mindful of these things and um, that the Lord has his way with us this coming week.